Good afternoon, everybody. What does this look like to you? This is what we're going to talk about today. Good afternoon. Today is Tuesday. It's 12.15 p.m. Time for Lunch and Learn, our weekly learning session together. Opa. We're just getting set up here. Ready to begin. Sorry about that. Uh, we're back here for our weekly Lunch and Learn. Today is Lunch and Learn number 99. Since we began over two years ago, every Tuesday we meet. Usually we would meet in a synagogue and have lunch at 12 and at 12.15 begin a 60-minute lesson. Um, the past couple of months we've been continuing to study Torah um, using the Facebook Live platform. Hi Jody, hi Roy, hi Igor. We are back and excited to study Torah together, always looking to make Torah relevant and practical to our lives, extracting the lessons from the Torah. It's going to be interesting today, fascinating. It's been interesting um, preparing this class. And I look forward to sharing it with you. There's much to talk about this topic, but uh, there's always more to learn, but I'll be happy to share what I've learned so far. So I send out an email with the source sheet, or you can find it on a link over here. You can download it, print it out, and we're going to uh, get started momentarily. <clears throat> Today's lesson is about the Ark. As we saw in the picture, if you missed it, here it is. Here is a uh, picture of what the Ark looked like. We're talking about not the Ark of Noah, we're talking about the Ark of the Covenant. Have you ever heard of um, the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark? If you watched it, let me know. I didn't watch it, but uh, today we'll see a little bit of a different version, a Torah version. Not fiction, but uh, real stuff. Non-fiction, non-fictional. We're going to see the Torah's perspective about the Ark. What is the Ark? Where is the Ark today? How the Ark was made? What kind of lessons? How is the Ark relevant to us? And um, we are just about ready to start. I'm going to make a bracha over a cup of water. Baruch Okay, of course, today's lesson is dedicated to Meir Chaim, Ben Chayatzira, Yishava Rafua Shalema, a complete and speedy recovery, and uh, have, we should have only good reports and positive things to, to, uh, to share. Hi, Jack. Nice to see you. And uh, once again, you should have the source sheet. Today, as I mentioned, is number 99. Lunch and learn number 99. You know, 99, the number 99 brings to mind... The first bris, Avraham, Abraham was the first to get the mitzvah of performing a circumcision. He was 99 years old. Thank God that doesn't apply nowadays. We do it at 8 days old for a boy, but if someone missed opportunity, whatever age, even if he is 99, he has the mitzvah to perform a bris. So there was this uh, individual who came from um, a place where it was not possible to perform a bris at 8 days old. There was no moihel or whatever it is. It wasn't, uh, they, they weren't aware of this mitzvah. And uh, this guy is trying to explain to them what's going to happen when they have a bris. They said, 
you know, can be, it's, it's, uh, it's a big deal because I had a bris when I was eight days old and I couldn't walk for over a year after that. So you got to be careful. Uh, so that's just a joke. A bris is really not such a uh, serious kind of thing. <laughs> it's very serious, it's a mitzvah, but an uh, eight-day-old baby, it heals in no time, and uh, the baby cries even before anything happens. It's a beautiful mitzvah that is connected to number 99. Today's lesson is number 99 of studying uh, Torah together. Here we go. Uh, hopefully you have your source sheet uh, ready. We're talking about a vessel, a vessel from the temple. So when we say temple, we're going to refer to it as the Beis Hamikdash. Beis Hamikdash means the house, uh, the holy house, the holy temple. We're not referring to a, a, a regular synagogue or temple. We're referring to the temple, the holy temple. Mikdash comes from the word Kiddush or Kaddish, which means holy, the holy house. The holy house, why was it so holy? Primarily because it housed the ark. The ark, we'll soon see, was the primary object in the temple, in the Beis HaMikdash. And this temple, this Beis HaMikdash, stood in Jerusalem for hundreds of years and till today is a place where tourists come and all kinds of people come to visit this holy place. We have a remnant of the wall surrounding the Beis HaMikdash, known as the Kotel, the Western Wall. It's a beautiful song we used to sing as uh, children in camp about the Kotel, as if the Kotel is singing, as if the wall is singing, and it says, A house of marble and of stone once stood here by my side. Uh, a house of marble and of stone from far and wide all came to see its beauty and its pride. Behind the wall there was a temple and in the temple there was an ark and people would come from far and wide to see it. Today we're going to jump in and learn about the most important object. Okay, I think uh, that's enough introductions. Let's take a look at um, source number one. So the ark in Hebrew is known as the Aron, which means a box. The Jewish people were instructed in the desert shortly after receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai to construct a box. We'll get into the details of the design later. And this box should be placed in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle, eventually in the Beis HaMikdash. And it accompanied the Jewish people for hundreds and hundreds of years. There was something miraculous about the Ark, the Aron. It led the Jewish people on their travels through the desert. It led them through wars against their enemies. Lots of fabulous and uh, amazing stories about the Ark. Today, we'll divide our lesson into four sections. The first section is more we're going to deal with where is the Ark today. Number two, the design of the Ark, what it was made out of. Number three, we're going to talk about what was over the Ark, the cherubs, the cherubim, the angelic uh, designs that were over the ark and finally number four the poles of the ark. So that's uh, today's lesson divided into four categories. Here we go. It should take about 60 minutes or so. Source number one, there was nothing inside the ark but the two tablets. 
of stone, which Moshe placed there. So this is a, a quote from the, from the book of Kings. This is talking about King Solomon building the first temple after the ark being in the desert with them for 40 years and in a uh, temporary home for hundreds of years until the big Beis HaMikdash, the temple in Jerusalem, was built by King Solomon. And with great fanfare, they brought in the ark into the temple, into the Beis HaMikdash. And what is in the ark? Says the book of Kings, there was nothing inside the ark but the two tablets of stone. What are these two tablets? These are the luchos. These are the two tablets of stone, which was sapphire stone, which Moshe placed it. This was the same ark that Moshe had um, constructed, or in order to construct. Hi, Judy. Good afternoon. And these were the two tablets that God engraved the wording of the Ten Commandments on them. They were very miraculous. They were made by God. They were engraved by God. So that's was, this is hundreds of years later when King Solomon is building the temple. What's in the ark? Those two tablets. Where do we see Moshe place those tablets in the ark? You shall place into the ark the testimony which I will give you. We see in the book of Exodus that God instructed Moshe to place into the ark the testimony. What is the testimony? Says Rashi, the Torah. The Torah is the testimony, it's the contract between the Jewish people and God, that God gave us the Torah, the Torah tells us everything, gives us testimony of everything. The Torah should be put, the Torah meaning the tablets, as well as also a Torah scroll which was later put there, but the tablets which encapsulates the entire the Ten Commandments, excuse me, uh, the, the Ten Commandments has within it all of the Torah. What was in the Ark? The Ark housed the most precious um, relic, the most precious object of the Jewish people handmade or hand engraved by God the ten the two tablets with the Ten Commandments engraved on them. Hi Gail, welcome. We just got started. We're talking about the Ark today. Number two so we know what was in the Ark but what was so special about the Ark even more? Source 2 God says I will speak with you from atop the Ark all that I will command you unto the children of Israel. Moshe would hear the voice addressing him from above the ark. So the ark was not just a place which housed the most important and holy object of the Jewish people, but it was the place, the location, where God communicated to Moshe and to us through Moshe, telling us all the Torah, telling us all the instructions. Where was God's presence most uh, revealed, most rested? right there in the ark, where the tablets were on top of the ark. That's where he spoke to Moses. That's where everything went on. This was the holiest place and the holiest object, the holiest vessel in the temple. Now, where is this ark? Where is the ark? Where is it today? So in the times of the temple, it was in, not just in the temple, it was in the holiest place of the temple. There was a chamber called the Holy of Holies. There was one chamber called Holy that's the holy, that's where the menorah was, one of the altars were there. But the Holy of Holies was where the Ark was housed. And that's why it was called Holy of Holies, because the Ark was there. It's the holiest thing. This is where God's presence was, was in, the, in the greatest way in, this, in the entire universe, entire world. And that is what the whole temple was about. The whole temple is about God wanting a dwelling place. As the Torah says, make me a temple and I will dwell amongst you. And we're in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, specifically by the Ark, which had God, God's engraved 
words, the Ten Commandments on these slabs of stones, on these tablets. But where is that ark today? For hundreds of years it stood in the Beis Amikdash. I never watched a movie of Indiana Jones, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, but we're going to see a Torah version, what the Torah says, what the truth is, where is the ark today? What happened to it? The Beis Amikdash was destroyed. The first temple of King Solomon was destroyed. When the Jews came 70 years later to build the second temple, the ark did not return. They built a room called the Holy of Holies, but the actual ark of Moses was not there. Where was the ark? Where is the ark today? That is what we're going to see in source number three. Some say it's in Ethiopia, some say in Egypt, in England, maybe even in the U.S., here we're going to look what the Torah tells us, what the commentaries tells us, our tradition tells us, the Talmud tells us, where is this holy ark? Source number three tells us Maimonides. Maimonides, based on the Talmud, tells us there was a stone in the Holy of Holies on which the ark was placed. Some say that's the Dome of the Rock. Some say it was a different stone. When King Shlomo constructed, that's King Solomon, the son of King David, when he constructed the Beis Hamikdash, knowing that it would ultimately be destroyed, he constructed a place for the Ark to be entombed below the Holy of Holies in deep maze-like vaults. So King Shlomo, he constructed the Beis Hamikdash, of course with divine inspiration as it says in the book. God instructed him how exactly all the the specs, the specifications, how um, the architect of the building, all the details was inspired by God. And he knew that eventually this building, this magnificent structure will be destroyed. And he planned a hiding place, if you can say. Or not a hiding place, he constructed a place where the ark should be entombed below the Holy of Holies. So there was the Holy of Holies, you know, up there in the temple. And below the Holy of Holies, he constructed deep maze-like vaults and passages, a whole complex of, of uh, caves leading to a hiding place below the Holy of Holies where eventually the Ark could be buried, could be uh, or, or put, put away at that place. Eventually, couple hundred years later, King Solomon's great-great-great-grandson, his name was Yoshiyahu, Josiah, or G I think that's how it's pronounced in English. Source 4, Yoshiyahu said to the Levites, we have this in the book of Chronicles, put the holy ark in the house that Solomon built, as you no longer carry it on your shoulders. Now serve the Lord your God and his people Israel. What is this referring to? Why is Yoshiyahu the king instructing the Levites to put the holy ark in the house that Solomon built? I mean, that's where the ark was. The ark never left the temple building. It was in the Holy of Holies. What is Yoshiyahu referring to? Tells the Talmud that Yoshiyahu was telling the Levites, instructing them to remove the ark from the Holy of Holies and insert it, to bring it to this cave, to this vault that King Solomon constructed hundreds of years before when he was constructing the temple originally. So towards the end of the first temple era, King Yoshiyahu instructed that the ark 
be hidden in those prepared passages, in, there, in that prepared uh, vaults that King Solomon built. So that answers our question very simply, where is the ark? The ark is right there. It's right behind the Temple Mount, right behind the Western Wall. It's in the Temple Mount, somewhere hidden down there. There, the ark stands intact. There are other opinions in Talmud, whether it was brought to Babylonia or it was, it was taken captive. But the opinion that is brought in Jewish law, which means this is the accepted opinion, definitely the opinion of Maimonides and widely accepted, is that the Holy Ark remains in the Temple Mount. That's where it is. But we're going to talk about what this has to do with us. Why would King Shlomo, King Solomon, think about destruction when it's time for construction? He's building the temple. They have been waiting for hundreds of years to finally have a permanent home for the, for the ark. There are many stories in, in, uh, in, in the books of the prophets how the ark would, was taken captive by the Philistines and the Philistines had lots of trouble and lots of problems as a result. And finally it was taken from here to there and King David was looking for a place and eventually King Solomon brought the, brought the ark into the temple. Why would King Solomon be thinking of destruction? And not just King Solomon, obviously, if King Solomon constructed it that way, he wasn't allowed to add anything into the building of the plans of the temple. Everything was orchestrated by God. Why would we be planning for destruction? Sorry about that. Why would we be planning for destruction? And also, Yoshiyahu, when he instructed the ark to be brought into the, into the vault that King Solomon prepared, it wasn't, it wasn't the destruction yet. It was 22 years before the destruction of the first temple, before the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar, came to destroy the temple. It was years before. Why 22 years would the ark be in, in, uh, buried, entombed in these vaults? And another question is, we just said the ark is the holiest object of the temple. Everything else in the temple surrounds the ark. Because the temple is a place where God, it's a, holy, it's a holy temple. It's a holy place because God rests over there. And if the ark is absent, then we're, what makes this temple so holy? And this lies the answer. Let's take a look at source number five. At the outset, there were two places for the ark. A, a revealed place, and B, a hidden place. The construction of this chamber was not an afterthought to protect the ark at a time of need, but rather part of the structure which God intended for the Beis Hamikdash at the outset. The ark, in order to be bringing God's presence needed to be in the Holy of Holies, in the right place, in the right chamber. The, the chamber that the ark was inserted in wasn't just, Oy vey, the enemies are coming, they might take the ark captive, it's going to be lost, let's hide the ark, let's build a cave, let's, let's save this ark, shouldn't have fallen to the wrong hands. That's not what it was about. It wasn't put away in the wrong place, in a place where it wasn't comfortable, in a place that wasn't prepared for the ark not in the Holy of Holies. Rather, from the outsets, when a permanent place was being prepared for the Ark, there were two options. There were two Holy of Holies. One chamber was prepared above ground, 
the revealed Holy of Holies, and one was right behind, under it, above, uh, be underground. Right there, there was a chamber called the Holy of Holies that was hidden from sight. There was a time for hundreds of years when the Ark stood in its revealed place. And there was a time when it was time for the Ark to be in its hidden, underground chamber called the Holy of Holies. When Yoshio instructed the Levites to hide the Ark, it wasn't a time of destruction yet. It was years before. Just to point out that the Ark is not being hidden because enemies are coming. Even it's a, it's a calm time. Yes, they were hearing the voices of the prophets that eventually there's going to come a destruction. But 22 years before, the ark was hidden calmly and it's being put in its prepared place. Take a look at source number 6. He did not say remove the ark from its place. For the emphasis was not that the ark was being taken from its place but rather that it was being brought to a place appropriate for it by saying, now go and serve God. What's Yoshio saying? Go and serve God. They were serving God all the time. What is he, what's the message he is telling the Levites? Yoshio was emphasizing that the fact that the ark would no longer be in the Holy of Holies above ground did not detract at all from the sanctity of the Beis HaMikdash. It is not in some random place, some hidden place. The ark is being put in the place that was intended for the ark to be. It is fully intact. The holiness of the temple continues to move on. Go and serve God. Yes, the ark is not in the Holy of Holies above ground, but that's not lacking. The holiness is not going to be lacking. It is in a prepared place that King Solomon initially prepared with God's word. That's where the ark should be. And that tells us that even after the, second, the first temple was destroyed, when the second temple came and they built it, they were lacking the, the ark in the revealed place. But the ark was fully there. The holiness was fully there underground. Until today, we come to the Temple Mount, that ark is there. That holiness is there. It is fully intact. Not revealed. Hidden. Hopefully soon, we'll have the building of the third temple when we'll have the ark back in its revealed spot. What has this got to do with us? Today's lesson we're going to see in each of, the, each of the sections how this comes back to us, what relevance it has to us. Source number seven. Within every one of us, within every Jew, there is a sanctuary in microcosm, just a, an indwelling of God's presence. Just like the holy temple, the physical building, the wood, the gold, the marble, the silver, not so much silver, gold, was a house, a dwelling place for God's presence, primarily in the ark, but in the entire temple. So to each and every one of us, we're like a miniature temple. We house God's presence. We have a piece of God inside of us, right here or right here. We have a neshama. We have a soul, which is a piece of God. And just as the ark was hidden, at times, continuing in Source 7, at times, this spiritual potential is hidden, lying untouched in deep, maze-like vaults. By bringing this inner potential to outward expression, we hasten the time when the Ark will emerge from its hidden place. Sometimes we don't even know we have this hidden Ark. Someone comes to the Temple Mount, they have no idea that hidden right below their shoes, below their feet, there is an ark. 
It's hidden, but it's there in all of its holiness, in all of its glory. It's all there. And it was prepared there by King Solomon. So too in each and every one of us we have a neshama. That neshama will never be destroyed. Just as the temple was never fully destroyed. The ark is always intact. And that is the pulse of the, of the entire temple. This is God's presence. God destroyed the wood, the stone, the building. But God's presence is still there. It is eternal. That never gets destroyed. When the third temple will be rebuilt, it will just be built on the foundation of the ark, which is there hidden. And so too with a Yiddish neshama, a Jewish soul never is lost. Maybe confused, but not lost. He has that ark inside of him. Excuse me, it may be hidden, but it's never destroyed. All you have to do is to bring it out, to let it be expressed and come up from the maze-like vaults, from those vaults down there, from the chamber, the hidden chamber, bring it up to the revealed chamber. And when we do our part, bringing out our neshama to be revealed, Hashem will do His part and bring the ark, bring His presence into the revealed temple, the revealed Holy of Holies above ground. So that was, now we know a little bit about the ark itself. We know what the ark is, what it represents, what it has inside of it, and where it is today. Let's move on to the second a second section here, learning a little bit more details of the actual design of the Ark. Here we go. Okay. <clears throat> Let's just take a, give you a little picture here of what the Ark uh, looked like from a Torah view, what the Ark looked like. Um, we have it here. Again, here you have the Ark. We're going to look for first at this uh, box and just show you another picture. One second. Okay, we got that in a moment. So let's take a look at the ark, the design of the ark. Where, where does this mitzvah actually come from? Um, okay, if you're listening, if you could just uh, say hello or give me a thumbs up. It's hard to... Uh, get used to Facebook Live, you know, I can't wait to see everybody personally. I heard that FedEx and UPS are merging and they're going to be called Fed Up. Well, I'm trying not to get fed up with this whole system and Hopefully very soon we'll be able to uh, get together. Got to make the best of every situation. <clears throat> okay. I have to trust. Oh, there we go. Thank you. Here we go. Source number eight. Where did the mitzvah of the Ark come? If anyone has any comments, feel free to comment and we'll get to it uh, towards the end. Source number eight. They shall make an Ark of, a, of a acacia wood. Acacia wood. What are the measurements? Two and a half cubits, its length, a cubit and a half, its width, and a cubit and a half, its height. Okay, the Torah gives very exact measurements. God is very particular over here. Exactly how this ark should be built. What should it be made out of? Wood. What kind of wood? Acacia wood. Acacia wood, I think I'm pronouncing it right. The kind of tree. And the length of it should be two and a half cubits. A cubit is about 18 inches, so about 45 inches the length, 
cubit and a half it's width, and a cubit and a half it's height. Very interesting. If you contrast the measurements, and these are God's specific measurements for the ark, it's very different than other vessels of the temple. You had the showbread table, you had the, you had, uh, other, the, the altar, and all others, most of the measurements are, are full. There are two cubits, three cubits, one cubit, but the arc, the length, the height, the width, they're all halves. Two and a half, one and a half, one and a half. What's up with the halves? Usually things are to be full. When we make Kiddush, you got to fill up your cup all the way. No halves. So why halves? I don't know why, but this is, this is God's will. But perhaps there is a lesson here, source number nine. In as much as the ark housed the Torah, this alludes to the idea that the Torah must break us. It must be learned in such a way that it breaks our ingrained habits and negative personality traits. Not that it breaks us, you know, more like there was a saying of uh, one of the Chabad Rebbe's, there's nothing more whole than a broken heart. So a broken heart means a heart which um, is humble. That's what the Torah, the Torah is here to tell us that, to, to give us the guidance to change ourselves, to break ourselves, to a person is born with certain selfish or you know, instincts or temptations or um, things that he is attracted to or he or she is attracted to that not necessarily is always so positive. And whether it's nature or nurture, something that we acquired over time, people we spend time with, whatever it is, there's always room for, for growth. Number one, we're only half. We're never complete. Only God is perfect. We have always room to improve. The Aaron is the Torah, which has the tablets and Torah, God's presence. It's all about, it's all about helping us, inspiring us to number one, come to the realization that we're only half. We're never complete. We always have, we're a work in progress. We always have where to improve and to break the whole into halves. Whatever, the way we are should, should be broken, should be changed, should be channeled to become a better person, to become more of a caring person, a giving person, more of a godly, a goodly person. That's what the measurements of the ark, the half measurements, the broken measurements of the ark tells us. Let's move on to the actual uh, building of the ark. How is it done? It was made out of wood, we know that, but source number 10 tells us, God says you shall overlay it with pure gold from inside and from outside. So it's wood, but the wood shouldn't be seen, it should be coated with gold. So a simple way was, would be, I mean I'm not a goldsmith, but uh, I guess you th a simple way would be, would take this gold and with you know, uh, wet or what's it called, uh, melted gold, you just coat it. But that's not how it was done. Continuing in source number nine, excuse me, source number 10, the Talmud says, Betzalel, who was a craftsman who was hired or commissioned by, uh, or whatever the word is, he was uh, um, found by, by, by Moshe, Betzalel made three arcs, a middle one made of wood, an inner one of gold, and an outer one of gold. He didn't just take wood make one wooden box and coat it in gold. He actually constructed three separate boxes, an outer larger box of gold, an inner one of wood, and then a smaller box 
of gold on the inside, and that way, by inserting one into the other, they were tucked into each other, the wood in the sandwich, the sandwich middle, and the gold on the inside, on the outside, it was fully coated in gold. Why would Betzal have to do that? Let's take a look at a picture here of what that looked like. So you see here, um, three boxes. You have the outer one, which is gold, the inner one, which is wood, and again, the inner one, and obviously they were all, um, closed tightly and inside the inner box was the tablets with the Ten Commandments and it was covered over as we'll see soon with something else. Why would Betzal need to make three separate boxes instead of just one box encoded with gold? Again, this is God's will, but every detail of the Aron has relevance to us, is a lesson for us. Our Aron is intact. Just as we mentioned, the Ark, Aron in Hebrew, the Ark is intact in the Temple Mount, and that Ark is intact within each one of us. Our soul, which houses God, is intact inside of us. What has this got to do with us? The gold, the wood, the gold, source number 11. These three boxes represent three dimensions of our Ark inside of ourselves. Number, uh, source 11. The innermost dimension of the soul is pure gold. Let's talk about gold for a second. Gold, you know, there's an expression in Yiddish. You say, gold in a hand. Gold hand. Somebody who's very talented, like this man Betzalel, who, who made many of the vessels of the temple. Lots of details, very intricate carving and molding. Beautiful designs. Somebody who was very good with their hands. We say, gold in a hand. Why do we refer to golden hands? I mean, is, what, what's the expression gold? Because gold doesn't rot. Gold stays pure. Gold can be hidden in the ground. It doesn't rust. It doesn't change. Gold, if somebody has that talent, somebody is good with their hands, they, they'll never lose it. They might, they might stay and not use it uh, for a long time, but... In a short time, they can get back into their talent. That's why we say golden hands. It's something not just precious like gold, but something which doesn't rot. On the other hand, we say if somebody has a good head, they'll say he has an eisenem cup, he has an iron head. But if you don't use your head, it's going to fry, it's going to rot. It's like iron, it's not like gold. You got to use your head, you got to use those muscles, you got to use your brain and keep it, keep it uh, engaged. Golden hands. Then you have wood. Wood can decay. Wood can deteriorate. It can get, go bad. It can rot. It can get wet and rot and smelly with worms and get all mushy. Wood fluctuates. Could be good. Could be beautiful. But it could be rotten. Gold could just get dirty. Could get really dirty. You might not even know that it's gold. But it's still gold. It's pristine. It's, it's precious. Now let's take a look at source 11. So inner, the innermost dimension of the soul is pure gold. That box, that smallest box of the, of the ark, that represents the innermost dimension of the soul. That's pure gold. This is our godly spark. That part of our subconscious that can never be tainted, just like gold, which is an inorganic element not subject to change. It doesn't grow, it doesn't, it's not, it just is. And that's the neshama that never gets changed. You might not even feel it. It's subconscious, but it's there. 
like the ark. It's like hidden in the Temple Mount. No one knows where it is. You never see it. But it's there. Next comes the more visible part of our soul. Our personality, feelings, attitudes, and moods. The part of us that fluctuates constantly. Today I'm in a good mood. It's a bad mood. Today I feel like this. I feel like that. I'm happy. I'm sad. I'm interested, uninterested. I'm spiritual, not spiritual. Like wood. These, these can either be exquisite and beautiful. Wood can be made very artistic, be beautiful. That represents our idealistic spiritual moments. Or rotten, the moments filled with depression and negative desires. That's what wood represents. Our conscious, what goes on inside of us, our feelings, our thoughts. Finally, there is the outer arc, that which is visible to all. Our behavior, ideally, this too is to be gold. That's our behavior. What does everybody see? They don't necessarily see our feelings. They don't see what we're thinking inside. They see our behavior. They see how we act. Just like the ark. What was seen on the outside? You didn't see the wood. You didn't even see the golden box inside that was covered. All you saw was the outside gold. That represents our behavior. So we have the innermost box, which is our deep soul, which never gets changed like gold. We have the wooden box, which is the, the main part of the, 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 inner, the, the middle, the inner of the, of the ark, which is wood. And then we have our behavior. What is, this got to, what is the lesson? What does this mean to us? Source 12, we turn the page. Two points there. A, we acknowledge that the middle layer of wood will have its dark moments. We are human beings. We have a struggle. Not always are we in the best of moods. Not always are we interested. Sometimes we just want to relax and, you know, have fun. Not always are we, are things going, uh, you know, the, are the feelings inside of us the way they should be. Nonetheless, we are instructed to control our temptations and show a brilliant gold. Despite what's going on inside, our actions are under our jurisdictions. Whatever temptations we might have, we have to be able to control those temptations and make sure if they're not good temptations, they should not come out, they should not spill over into our behavior. Our behavior should stay gold. Yes, the middle can be wood. God understands that. He says the middle of your ark is wood. Your feelings, sometimes they're rotten. Sometimes they decay. Sometimes they're not in the best of, of, of uh, conditions. And yet, God says, outside it should be a box of gold. Not just coated, it's a whole box. The behavior does not have to reflect how you're feeling inside. Even if you don't like that guy, you can still help him. Even if you're not interested, you can still, or even if you really want to eat that thing, you can say, it's not kosher. You control yourself. God recognizes, yes, the inside may be wood, your feelings, your thoughts, your instincts, but you have the ability, you have the responsibility and the ability to overcome that. You have jurisdiction over your behavior and it can be gold on the outside nonetheless. But B, we should never feel like hypocrites when doing a good deed. On the contrary, it is the middle level that is not true to our essence. The gold we display on the outside simply mirrors who we are at our deepest level. So one might say, I feel like a hypocrite. 
I don't always do this. I don't always do that. Why should I do this? Why should I do this mitzvah? Just because the inside is wood sometimes, it doesn't mean that on the outside the behavior shouldn't be gold. The gold on the external, on the behavior, that mirrors your neshama. That mirrors your purest self. The purest gold box on the inside. That's who you really are. You might not always feel it. That's who you really are. So on one hand, there is wood. There is fluctuation. There is a struggle. We have to make sure on behavior we're, as much as we can, golden. And not feel like a hypocrite because that is who we really, really are. We just have to let that gold, deep uh, neshama, our true self, express itself more and more. Our action goes back mirrors our core. Like someone wrote to the Rebbe, he feels, he feels like a hypocrite going to Shul only on Yom Kippur. What about the rest of the year? And the Rebbe says, you're not a hypocrite on Yom Kippur. You're a hypocrite the rest of the year because that's not who you really are. On Yom Kippur, your true self, your golden self, your neshama is coming out and you're coming to Shul in your behavior. When your behavior is not always like that, that you're being a hypocrite to your true self. Maybe it's matching the wood, but it's not matching the gold inside. And that's who we really are. It's our neshama. That is never destroyed. That golden box, that ark is hidden inside. It is never destroyed. It's right there in the Temple Mount. It's right there deep down inside of us. Moving on to section number three. What was above? What was above the ark? The tablets were in there. What was covering the ark were the cherubs, the cherubim. Cherubim. We're going to call them keruvim. That's how the Torah refers to them. Keruvim are, just finding the right picture here, were angelic beings that covered the ark. Take a look here. Something like this. You had these two beings and they were carved out of gold and they were looking over. They were placed right over the ark. Hmm, I thought there was another picture here. That was a little better. One second. Okay, here we go. Here you have another picture. You see the ark box all closed up. Hidden in there is the wood and the gold. And on top, you have these keruvim. That's what we're going to learn about. And once again, we're going to see how this is relevant to us. Take a look at source number 13. You shall make two golden keruvim. The keruvim shall have their wings spread upwards, shielding the ark cover with their wings, with their faces toward one another. So there were two beings and like angelic, they had wings, excuse me, they should be facing each other, they should be made out of gold. What is keruv? Keruvim is plural. Keruv or cherub, what does it mean? It's 14, source 14, the Talmud tells us, what is the form of the face of a keruv? What did it look like? Like that of a child. As in Babylonia, one calls a child ravya. So Keruvim, kaf means like, 
like a Ravya, Ruvim, like a child. The faces of the Keruvim were childlike. That's what the word Keruvim means, like children. And the Zohar tells us, one in the likeness of a boy and the other of a girl. So the Keruvim were these two beings, angelic beings with, with uh, wings. One was the face of a boy, a young boy, and one the face of a girl. What did these represent? Let's look at two ideas. Source number 15, the Keruvim wings spread protectively over the Ark alludes to the fact that the Torah education of little children ensures the preservation and continuity of the transmission of the Torah. The Ark housed the Torah. It, has, it housed the tablets which had the Ten Commandments which encapsulated the whole Torah. As you mentioned many times, there were 620 letters in the Ten Commandments corresponding to the 613 biblical mitzvahs and seven rabbinic mitzvahs. There was the Torah scroll right there, whether inside or right near it, that Moshe wrote. The Ark represented the Torah. God's gift to us, God's instructions. What was protecting the Ark? Two children, a boy and a girl. Who are the protectors of the Torah? Who make sure, who ensure the continuity of the Torah's teachings, the transmission of the Torah, the children. We need to educate our children from a young age, teaching them our traditions, the values of the Torah, the ideals of the Torah, the stories of the Torah, the mitzvahs of the Torah, the children with their wings. They will carry the Torah into the next generation and their children to the next generation. That is the message. Another idea, source 16, the infant-like faces of the Keruvim signified that our intrinsic bond with God is akin to the essential bond between parent and child, which can never be sundered despite any temporal fluctuations in their relationship. The temple was a place where lots of rituals were going on. There were sacrifices, there were offerings, there was menorahs being lit, there were lots of mitzvahs being done. But God was sending the Jewish people a message that whatever happens, whatever the Torah-like relationship, the Torah and mitzvahs relationship we have, whatever is doing with that, whether one is more observant or less observant, more knowledgeable in Torah, less knowledgeable of Torah, the relationship between God and the Jewish people is like a parent and a child. The Keruvim, the cherub signified that there is an intrinsic bond between God and the Jewish people, like there is a natural deep bond between parents and children. No matter what grade the child gets on their exams or tests, no matter how the child treats the parent, the parent has a deep love to, for every single child. Boy and girl, smart, less smart, better behaved, less behaved, not so good behaved. A parent loves a child no matter what happens. A child is a piece of a parent, and a Jew has a neshama, has a soul, is a piece of Hashem. The keruvim, the cherub, signify that intrinsic bond that Hashem has with the Jewish people. No matter what happens, God loves us. Source 17, when the Jewish people would ascend for the festivals three times a year, when the Jews would make a pilgrim, a pilgrimage to the temple for Passover, for Shavuos, for Sukkos, Normally, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark stood, was covered. There was a curtain, a parochet, just as the Ark in our shul, 
which is which is a you know a copy of the idea of the ark. That's where the Torah is held. So there is a, a, a it's called the Aron in Hebrew, Aron Kodesh, and there's a curtain. There was a curtain there dividing, covering the ark from view from all the Jewish people. But on the on the holidays where all Jewish people came, the Kohanim, the priests, would roll up the curtain for them and show them the Keruvim, which were clinging to one another. Miraculously, they were made out of gold. They were inanimate. But yet, this boy and this girl, the male and female, were clinging. They were hugging each other and say to them, they would say to the Jewish people, see how you are beloved before God, like the love of a male and a female. God represented in the male and we are like God's bride and the Jewish people are represented in the female. God loves us. God is hugging us no matter what happens. God loves us. We have an ark inside of us. We have a gold ark inside of us. That ark is never destroyed. That ark is indestructible. It is pristine. It is precious. It may get dirty like the gold in a mine, but it is intact. It is gold nonetheless. It is precious. All we have to do is polish it. We have to bring it up from the hidden vault and bring it up to the revealed Holy of Holies. But it's there. It's pristine. It's intact. And even when it was time for the destruction of the temple, source 18, when Gentiles destroyed the temple and entered the sanctuary, they saw the Keruvim clinging to one another. Even at times when the Jews strayed, they served other gods. They were not such an obedient child. They weren't following the parent God's instructions in many areas. And the temple needed to be destroyed. God destroyed the temple. He destroyed the stones and the walls and the wood and the gold. But the Jewish people are intact. We're still here. We're still here to tell the story, to learn about it. We're God's children. Sometimes a parent has to punish a child or better there's consequences they have to learn but it's from love you don't punish somebody else's child you don't rebuke your neighbor's child usually you rebuke your own children because you love them you want them to be good you want them to be on the right path God lovingly deals with us even during the destruction tells us the Talmud the Keruvim, which demonstrated God's relationship with His children, the Jewish people, they were hugging each other. The male, God, the female, us, was clinging to each other. God was demonstrating He nonetheless loves us. Benkach o benkach, whether the Jews are observant or not. Yes, we, we, a child should strive to do his parents' will. That's what a Jew must do. We must study Torah and do as many mitzvahs. Our external must be gold as well. We can't just be gold inside. We can't give in to the wooden rot, the wood that rots sometimes. We need to make sure that the, our behavior is gold. We need to, as much as we can, make sure that the wood is pristine, is exquisite and beautiful, and not let it rot. But it happens sometimes. We're not perfect. We're not angels. We are humans. Sometimes inside we're not in the mood. But we got to make sure. We got to know that our souls are gold. That's never destructible. As much as we can to bring that to the surface. Moving on to our final section. The poles. The poles of the ark. No comments? No questions? Disagreements? Let's take a look 
the ark, how was the ark transported? Especially during the times in the desert, when the ark was moving around 40 years in the desert, they were wandering from place to place. They would set up shop for a day, for a month, for a year, for five years, 10 years, and then they would, then they would move and they, the ark would be, would be carried. How was it carried? Let's take a look at source number 19. You shall make poles to carry the ark with them. The poles of the ark shall be in the rings. They shall not be removed from it. The poles shall not be removed from the rings attached to the ark. Tells us Rashi, they shall not be removed from it forever. Forever. The rods must be in the ark. Attached to the ark. They should never be removed. It's actually one of the 613 mitzvahs. Take a look at this picture here. You see the ark and those rods. You see those rings over there. Oh, there we go. You see those rings that were attached, these long rods, and this side as well. Now the truth is that other vessels also had rods, but they were allowed to be removed, especially once they came to the temple. It stood there for 400 years straight. What was the need for the rods to be there? So the other vessels, and they did not need to have the rods there all, at all times. But the ark, the Torah says, the ark which housed the Torah, it housed the, ta the two tablets, most precious items of the Jewish people and our faith, tells us the Torah, do not remove the ark. It was a strict prohibition, a biblical prohibition for one not to remove the rods, the poles from the ark. Why is that so important? Let's look at a simple, basic explanation and then take it a little bit deeper, applying it to our lives. Source number 20, a quote from the Chinuch. The Chinuch is a book which goes through the 613 commandments and gives a rational, logical explanation to them. Source 20. We have been obligated to treat it with all due respect and splendor. The ark needed to be treated, needed to be in the proper place amongst the proper people. As I mentioned before, the Philistines at one point during a war, they took the ark captive and it, there was havoc. There was plagues among the Philistines and they sent it back to the Jews. They were too scared. The ark uh, was dangerous for if it wasn't in the right place. The ark needed to be treated with utmost respect. Therefore, we have been commanded not to remove the poles of the ark, lest it become necessary for us to quickly go out somewhere with the ark. Maybe there's going to be, I don't know, God might decide it's time to leave, even from the temple in Jerusalem. And perhaps, owing to the trouble and the haste, we would not properly check that the poles are as strong as necessary. We'll find some poles and insert them and just, you know, there's a haste and just go. And perhaps it would fall from their hands. It wasn't properly secured. The poles are not strong enough. And this is not in keeping with its honor. Permanently installed rods would preclude this concern. It's a very basic, logical, technical explanation that the rods should always be there in case, I don't know, in case you got to leave, in case, I don't know, there's, there's this, someone comes in or God instructs to remove the ark. It shouldn't just be at the side. It, shouldn't, it needs to be right there, ready for takeoff, it should be right in place and never be removed. 
should be the right kind of rods. It might get lost if it's not there, and it might not get the right the right uh, ones to, to, to carry the ark. It should always be there, because otherwise, if you're not going to get the right rods, while you're carrying it, it might fall, and it might lead to disrespect, and we don't want that. Well, let's take this, let's look at this in a deeper way, trying to see if the ark is us, we have the ark inside of us, what has this got to do with us? Source number... 21. Here we see how the Rebbe takes a story of the Torah and applies it to our lives. The Ark housed the tablets which represent the Torah. One may think, while I study Torah, I must focus entirely on it and distance myself from anything else. The needs of another person cannot concern me at this time. The message of the permanent rods is that an ark must always be ready to travel, even when the ark is in the Holy of Holies, the holiest place in the world. It must be ready to hurriedly travel to a place in need of its light. The ark housed the Torah in the Holy of Holies, Somebody might be studying Torah, represented by the Ark. He's in the Holy of Holies. He's in synagogue. He's studying. He's busy. I'm reading a holy book. I'm, I'm doing a, a great thing. Connecting to God. Torah scholar. And he might think that he's in the Holy of Holies. He's not going nowhere. It doesn't matter who needs him. It doesn't matter if there are those who don't know about the Ark, who don't know about the Torah, who are less for fortunate, who did not, for whatever reason, have a Jewish education. They're busy. They're studying Torah. Tells us the Torah, never remove the poles. What are the poles for? The poles are to bring the Ark, to transport the Ark. Tells us the Torah, the Ark, the Torah is never left alone. Somebody who studies Torah without wings, without poles, to be able to bring the teachings of Torah to others, that is not the Torah way. The Torah says one transgresses a prohibition if he removes the poles. The poles must be inserted at all times. When someone knows some Torah, he must share it with others. The Ark was always ready. It represented, yes, it was in the Holy of Holies, but the poles were signifying, sending us the message that the Torah that we know, we should always be ready to share with others. We should always think of those that know less than us or whatever we know to share with others. We should always be thinking of those that are less fortunate, those that are less knowledgeable in Torah. Teach them, guide them, share the wisdom. The Ark always had those poles to transport the Ark. We always got to be with our, foot on the, with our foot on the pedal, to move the ark, to bring the Torah to others, to influence, to share the light. In another way, the poles represent the ability. You know, in general, different people have different roles, different jobs. There are those that for whatever reason got orchestrated that they are more knowledgeable in Torah, and are able to 
disseminate the teachings, the values of the Torah. In temple times, those were the Levites, the teachers, the teachers of Torah. But at the same time, there are those that enable the dissemination of Torah teachings, of Jewish values, of Jewish traditions, of mitzvos. Just as in temple times, the Levites did not work the land. They were in the temple. They were the rabbis, the teachers, and the Jewish people supported them. They gave them a certain percentage of what they, you know, in order to have food and, and uh, every tenth animal um, from produce and so on. There was a partnership. All Jews wanted that their children should be taught Torah, that they should be made aware of God's word and be taught and guided spiritually. There was this partnership. They supported the Levites and the Levites physically and the Levites supported them spiritually. Equally important, in order for the Torah to be disseminated, in order for the, for the Torah teachings to be spread out, they needed to live. The Levites needed someone to take care of their physical needs, their wives and children. To enable the teachings of Torah to be spread. Those are the poles. Those are the supporters of the Torah institutions. Those that support Torah study. Those that give charity to, to yeshivas, to Jewish education, to, to, to synagogues, to places of worship, to be able to spread the teachings of Torah. Those are the poles. The poles carry, they support the ark. They enable that the teachings of the tablets should be able to be carried around, to be able to be disseminated and taught to all the people. They are equally important. They are always right there with the ark. They are no less important. The ark is the Torah and the poles are the ones that enable the supporters, those that give the physical ability for the teachings of Torah to be disseminated they are right there with the ark. And to conclude with source number 20, yes, we did mention that at certain times on the festivals they would open up the curtain and see the ark, but most of the year the ark was, the, the curtain was closed. They didn't see the ark. They didn't see the tablets. What did they see? All they saw were the protruding poles. Source 22, to anyone in the Beis HaMikdash, the poles were the sole visible evidence of the existence of the Ark of the Covenant behind the curtain. All they saw were two dents in the curtain from the two poles of the Ark. The poles extended way beyond the Ark. The Ark was right there in the Holy of Holies. And the two poles protruded from the tent, from, excuse me, from the curtain. On the outside of the curtain they saw a dent in the curtain. And they knew the Ark was there. How did they see the Ark? How did they connect to the Torah? Only through the poles. Only through the supporters of the Torah. Those that enable that the teachings of Torah should be able to be disseminated. Those that supported the Jewish schools. Those that supported the teachings of Torah being spread out. Those that supported synagogues and uh, supported the teachings, the education of mitzvahs. Those were the poles. And that's how the Jews, what's, that's what they saw. They saw the poles. This is a little bit of the ark, how this re relates to us. Getting back to our song, 
A house of marble and of stone once stood here at my side. From far and wide I came to see its beauty and its pride. We are a beautiful temple. We have an neshama, a soul inside of us, which is an ark, which is indestructible. Just as the ark is hidden in the vault that King Solomon prepared under the Temple Mount, in the Holy of Holies, we have a neshama that is indestructible. It is pure. It is gold. It may We may have feelings and thoughts that are wood and may be rotten sometimes and not always exquisite, but our behavior can mirror our true essence, the gold, the beauty. We learn from the Ark the importance of Jewish education. We learn that God loves us. That God loves that neshama, that deep Ark that we have inside of us that is intrinsically connected, connecting us and God. And we learn from the Poles that we got to share this message. We need to share with others. If we know something, share with others. Invite them to a Torah class. Invite them to a, uh, a, a festival, a, a function, a celebration, a Jewish uh, celebration. Invite them. Teach them what you know. If you know the letter Aleph, teach them Aleph. If you know Bays, teach them Bays. I want to read to you, we're uh, concluded here, time for questions or comments. So I want to read to you while I'll wait for some comments. A, uh, a certain professor wrote to the Rebbe that <clears throat> that he's very bothered. He noticed that people seem, he has, you know, has many encounters in life, People seem very nice and charming at the outset, may be concerned, they may uh, show that they care, even say they love you. But if you dig a little deeper from the outer surface, at the core, he says, everyone is the same. Everyone is just selfish, arrogant, egotistical. He's like, why is this the nature of mankind? That's what he wrote to the Rebbe. The Rebbe responded to him and he says, if you walk outside this, in the street, Things look very elegant and appealing. There's beautiful trees, fancy houses, the roads are paved, expensive cars, everything is beautiful. But if you take a shovel and you start digging beneath the surface, what are you going to find there? You're going to find dirt and mud, peel. You're not going to find beautiful things. And everything is going to look very deceptive. Everything, all the beauty seems deceptive. And the professor was agreeing to the Rebbe's words. But if the, Re the Rebbe told him, if you don't give up, you keep digging. You keep digging even more. What are you going to find? You will eventually encounter precious minerals and diamonds. The Rebbe acknowledged the fact that beneath the surface, there often lies wood. It's not so, you know, it's not so flattering to see that. But if you dig even deeper beneath the dirt and the mud, you will find something holy. You will find a neshama. And a neshama is selfless. A neshama is selfless because it's a piece of God who is no such concept of, of, uh, of selfishness. That's the deepest part of a person. That's what we got to dig and reveal. That gold, pristine self. So hopefully this was uh, interesting for you. It was for me. So much more about the art that we can talk. 
but uh, now you know it's not in Germany or wherever Indiana Jones claimed uh, the Ark is or was. It's not in Ethiopia. It's right there. You can become, you can come real close to the Ark. Actually, today, you know, they do a lot of archaeology. You can check this up. The city of David. The city of David. Um, hi, Brian. Can see you before. Hi, Amy. Um, oh, and hi, Gary. And Stan and realize you're all watching. Hi, Howie. Um, this in the city of David, they do lots of uh, findings. They look up different things uh, underground, and they actually found different leads or clues saying that, that this leads, they possibly leads to these uh, vaults or passages under the Temple Mount. Um, you know, linking to, to this thing. So you might ask, why don't they just dig and see what's there? It's not so simple. Uh, it's uh, political, but also from a spiritual standpoint, even during the Second Temple era, where they did build the Second Temple, the Ark did not return. They did not bring up the Ark, even though there were very great people there and maybe prophets at the beginning of the Temple. But this was destined to be this way. Excuse me, actually, Talmud says, uh, I guess, a sad story that during the Second Temple era, there was uh, one of the Kohanes that dropped, an ham dropped a hammer or something and it landed on a tile and the tile got uh, you know, dislocated from its place and, uh, and, and suddenly the Kohen died. It's not some story, they have to remember, look up the details, but uh, it was, they, they realized that that must have been a, 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 you know, a tunnel leading to these underground passages. Obviously, it was God's will that the ark should not be in the above ground. You know, we know General the Second Temple, godly revelation was not as great as the First Temple era, but it was still intact. As we mentioned, it's in its proper place, uh, uh, underground, but still in its proper place. Hopefully very soon. We work on bringing out our inner temple, our inner ark, our golden ark to the surface, and God will bring Mashiach, and we will re re rebuild. Or, you know, it's not called just building the third temple. It's called rebuilding because it's, it's, our, it's there. The ark is there somewhere. It's hidden in there. We just got to add to it uh, the rest of the revealed overground, above-ground temple. Okay, so thank you all for joining. Um, it's great studying Torah together. Everyone should feel free, feel free to okay, uh, feel free to argue with me. Although mo what I'm what we share here is not my own thoughts; it is uh, from traditional Jewish sources. Each one has a source. Uh, it's gonna. I see here some comments I missed before. Uh, just one moment. What do we have here? Um, Okay, I'm happy you can watch us, Gail, from, from, uh, from your office. <coughs> uh, Gary, so if it's hidden, are the rods are with it? That's a great question. Are the rods with the Ark? Uh, I would say yes, because that is part of the makeup of the Ark. It's not like it's hidden and covered over with sand. There, there's a, there's a, a room. It's a chamber. It's Holy of Holies. You know, it's a full room. And there's somewhere corresponding to the Holy of Holies above ground. Somewhere down there, there is the Holy of Holies uh, underground. So there's enough room for the rods to be there. And the rods are not allowed to be removed. So I can't imagine that the Levites would remove the rods from the Ark. So the rods are, are there, right there. Actually, uh, 
the commentaries explain that the, in order to avoid the rods being removed, they constructed the rods in a way that it was impossible to be removed. They, uh, you know, it's made out of wood and coated with gold, so they did it in a way that uh, near the rings where the where the rod was went through the ring, it was thinner, and on the sides, uh, it was wider. So it just, it couldn't leave. You know, maybe it could shake a little bit, it could be moved around, but it couldn't actually be fully removed because the ends of the of the of the rod of the pole were thicker than than the than the ring. So it could not uh, be removed. Um, is it connected to the poles holding the scroll? So that's those are called atzechaim. A Torah scroll also has two poles, which is the scroll. Um, that's called atzechaim. The uh, trees of life those are <clears throat> just technical from what I understand uh, not every scroll must have a wooden or metal uh, you know pole it's just easier for it to be rolled properly also like a Megillah for example we also have some scrolls that we don't have rods they're just rolled um, the reason why we have the, the the poles for a Torah scroll is in order that we shouldn't touch the parchment we're not supposed to touch the actual parchment we use our talis or something else, but we don't touch it with our bare hands. So it's just easier to handle it with these with these poles. I believe that's the basic reason uh, for for the poles of a Torah scroll. So not exact, not not uh, directly related. And actually, there is an institution in Jerusalem called Machon Hamikdash, the temple, the Temple Institute. You can actually probably Google them online. I think they have a website. Um, I went there more than once. They have it's right uh, a couple minutes walk from the from the Temple Mount from the Kotel, and they have they fashioned the vessels of the temple in real life. Like they followed the measurements and the exact instructions with. Uh, that the Torah gives, uh, or the verses, or Mishnah gives, describing the different uh, things of the temple, and they make it in real life size. So they have the ark, or you know, the, and it's just amazing to you know to see it. Everything comes alive. They have the ark. They have the showbread, the menorah, and and um, I don't know if it's all real gold. I can imagine that that would be expensive, but definitely coated uh, gold color. Um, but it's uh, so they have the art, and you can actually like it's helpful to learn when you go to some sort of like a museum and um, sort of uh, relate to how things really were. So you can check those up. Uh, a yad, yes, Amy, a yad is, is like a hand that we use to point to the Torah scroll, that's uh, as well. Okay, so we're wrapping this up. Uh, our lunch and learn number 99. Next lunch and learn will be number 100. So I encourage you all to tune back in next Tuesday at 12.15 for lunch and learn number 100. It's going to be a nice celebration. And have a wonderful rest of your day, rest of your week. And tune back in hopefully Thursday on uh, 7.30 for our weekly episode. We're having a bar mitzvah, number 13. Episode number 13. Uh, take care. And... Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget, your ark deep inside of you is impure, is pure and pristine. <laughs>